One girl said to me, she was about 15, and she said, why can't all books be like this? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, printed on cream coloured paper. She said, I wouldn't feel like such an idiot. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, to have to wear my tinted lenses, because she had the green um, glasses. And she said, I feel like such an idiot with these on. And she said, I can just look at this book and read it without those on. That was Karen. Karen is a music teacher in the south of England and she's done a very simple but very clever thing. She lined up 20 creative, innovative, entrepreneurial people, interviewed them about their winning formulas for success and put it all together in a book. Oh, and they just happen to be dyslexic. Thank you for downloading this podcast. I'm John Gill. This is On The Fly and this episode is with Karen Cousins, music and dyslexia educator and now author. In this episode, Karen talks about the journey she's been on as a first-time author who took on a one-year project that turned into seven. She also has invaluable advice for anyone dealing with dyslexia, as well as families, parents, and teachers. Her book is Dyslexia and Success, The Winning Formulas, which shares the personal experience of a variety of people, Jodie Kidd, Sir Tom Jones, Sir Richard Branson, who have not allowed themselves to be defined or disadvantaged by dyslexia. You can find links to the book and Karen's social media in the episode notes, as well as links to her GoFundMe, where Karen is raising money to get the book into every school in the UK. There's lots in here for everyone, and I hope it's worth your time. Please subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, and better still, leave a review. Remember, the best recommendation is a personal one, so if you enjoy the episode, please share online and in person with anyone you think might benefit from hearing it. Thanks again for listening. This is On The Fly with John Gill and Karen Cousins. Dial up the pod. You know, is this your first book? It's my first and hopefully only book. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, you're not keen to do another? <laughs> the only I did initially when I first set out, because this was only a one year project, turned into seven. So, um, but anyway, uh, I did think that obviously with the pattern in the book, if you notice that it's the winning formulas background, there's there's a method and it goes through the whole book like that, because that's easier for people with dyslexia to actually navigate as well. So um, I did think that actually I could do an American version because obviously there's a lot of well-known people in America with dyslexia. So if it was really successful in the UK, that is something I could do. And maybe the second time around, it'll be easier. So, yeah. <laughs> do you think, do you think, cause you've got, you've got kids, don't you? Yes, they're grown up. So yeah. they're both so, in their late twenties, both with dyslexia. So so do you think writing books is a bit like having children that you like after you've had the first one you think never again yeah, but then you still do it and it's a little bit easier the second time around because <laughs> you know what you're doing well a little before. bit yeah <laughs> maybe <laughs> so 
so what so why why did you what what sort of forced you to want to write the book in the first place then so i went through school undiagnosed with dyslexia I was lucky because I had a lot of support at home, a lot. And I was pretty much tutored one-to-one with all the schoolwork. But luckily my parents both supported me with, um, I was good at sport and I was good at music. And they supported me with both those things. So uh, I left school at 16 and uh, went to work in a bank, hated it. um, And just kind of carried on with my music and luckily, I, because I could keep going with my music, later on, I was in a position where I could leave work and um, start teaching piano. So then I followed that career path and I did lots of courses and um, had my two children, um, built up a private practice and then went and worked in schools. Later on, I think my son was about seven years old. He was diagnosed with dyslexia. I'd never heard of dyslexia at that point. But at the very same time, I was on a teaching course when somebody spoke out about dyslexia. And I said, whoa, my son's just been diagnosed with that. Um, And when I went into the school to speak to them, I was like, well, he learned the way I learned. I just assumed it's because he's just learning the way his mum does. I knew it was a problem because it was always a problem for me and um, and school was a nightmare. So it turns out that obviously when she started looking at the patterns, she said, well, obviously you have dyslexia as well. So I kind of walked out of the school and thought, wow, there's, a, there's actually a name for this. This is why I found it so difficult. And yet my sister didn't. And my sister would be going through doing my work and she was two years younger than me. And, um, and it was just bizarre, really. So that's kind of how I got interested in dyslexia. And then as time went on, I was teaching a lot of students who have dyslexia and were either undiagnosed. And I had to go and say to the school, I think so-and-so's got dyslexia and they would be referred to be tested or they had dyslexia and they had really low self-esteem because the thing is the education system doesn't support people with dyslexia that well. You might get lucky and you might be in a school where a teacher is amazing and, you know, really supports you. But in my experience, a lot of the children were just struggling and still the same comments doesn't try hard enough, needs to try harder, should concentrate more. You know, it's still the same comments that I would have received when I was a child. So basically, I had these kids that were amazing on piano, but what they were good at was things like composing, um, playing by ear. um, And they were really good at those things, but reading music was quite difficult for them. And I could see how actually by teaching them in a different way, how... And people were like, oh, they're really amazing. How did you do that? And it's by not following the same tutor book all the time, because what happens just as in music education, as in any other education, you've got set books that you can follow. And teachers tend to follow those books and they don't kind of think outside the box at all. But people with dyslexia learn better through multi-sensory learning. 
So, um, you know, if I played something, they could probably copy it or um, we would look at things on YouTube. So if we were composing a piece, they might not, we're, we're doing piano, but they might not have tried other instruments. So I would show them things like the violin, things like the cello and other instruments. So they could write for other instruments. And then with one boy, what we did was we rounded up a group of um, kids that he'd written these instruments, his piece for, um, and we got them to actually perform it with their instruments. He got to know all those sounds through doing, watching, um, not from a book. Those kids are the ones that were really flying and they stood out. And yet self-esteem was on the floor. And that's yeah. what drove me to write the book because I knew that there were people out there, Sir Richard Branson, Sir Tom Jones, Sir Jackie Stewart, um, Sir Steve McQueen, you know, and, and I just think, wow, there's four sirs just here in the UK that have done these amazing things. And yet these kids think that they're no good because the education mm. system they don't get 10 out of 10 for something. They don't get A star for something. But actually, they're really good at other stuff. And I just felt that that really needed to be shown. And when I would say to them, do you know that so-and-so has dyslexia? And they were like, wow. Like, you just saw their face light up. They couldn't believe it. And it, you could see the difference in their, how they carried themselves when they came in from the lessons, when they went out. And I thought, oh, this, I've got to do something about this. I, I think the, the book is a great sort of window into the experience of people uh, who have dyslexia and have still done the thing that they want to do. Yeah. Um, I must admit, I was, I don't know if you've got a, so when I first saw it, I was, I was a little bit conflicted by the title because I thought, will there be a perception that you're not successful until you're well known for having done something? But equally, <laughs> the reason I looked at it was because I, oh, right, I didn't know he was dyslexic. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about that? So not all the people are famous. There are probably... Um, Two definitely that aren't. So um, I think one of the things that I really liked about Susan Hampshire is that she said, and this, and I'm I really believe in this as well, is that success can be you could just be a good mother, you could be a good painter, you could be a good gardener. Success doesn't have to be about fame. Um, I use these people because people can connect with them and they were from a different broad range of careers. So, for instance, Oliver Wright, he's the political editor of The Times. He's often on the front cover. Do you know him? I've never heard of him. Um, he's not what I call famous. Um, yeah. But to actually, um, I think he went to St Andrews, actually, university. But All right. I mean, he had a hell of a time at school. Yeah. And um, and I was just absolutely amazed that you could go into 
um, journalism when you've got dyslexia. I just could, mm. I was just so amazed by that. Um, so I try to show people from the different careers. Like you say, they're relatable because one, you know them yeah. and they don't fit the stereotype no. for a dyslexic person. Yeah. And, the, and unfortunately that, that stereotype it is usually born at school yeah. when you're told that you're, you're not trying hard enough yeah. or you're being lazy. And what all these people have said, nearly all of them, is to have self-belief because you have to believe in yourself so that other people will believe in you. Um, and, and really, a lot of them had a tough time at school, but you have to keep picking yourself up and dusting yourself off again and keep going and having that self-belief and focusing on what you're good at. That is the message. Uh, determination, all of those qualities that are needed to what I call success isn't necessarily fame. I would yeah. put that in the same category. Enjoying what you're doing, being passionate about what you're doing and loving what you're doing. You can't really go wrong with that. I'd already studied music and dyslexia at Southampton University to do with my work and my teaching because I knew there was kind of more to this than you know, I had this kind of bespoke teaching style. I think it's just something that I naturally did because I found learning so difficult. Yeah, and then this project kind of just escalated because I was all I was going to do was interview these people, get their winning formulas and share them. So really, it was going to be like a little bit clear as opposed to this massive thing yeah. that I didn't really want to produce something as big as this. It wasn't what I set out to do. But... As time went on, I started running parent workshops. I shared the inspirational stories with them, which they really liked, but they were like, this isn't enough. We need, we really need help. And I just couldn't understand it, that they weren't getting it from the school. I met a guy called David Llewellyn. He'd been in publishing all his life. And he said to me, so that this book doesn't end up dying on a shelf in Waterstones, he said, you've got to get action plans together for the parents because they don't know what to do. So you've got to get this together. So after obviously running these workshops, I then started talking to a lot of dyslexia specialists and I went into different schools and they took me through the sort of things that really help. They help the students, helps the parents and really helps the teachers because a lot of teachers have never had any teacher training on dyslexia. They, if they have a child in their class that has dyslexia, they may not even know. So therefore, of course, they will treat that child the same as all the others. Some of this seems really, really straightforward. Yeah. You know, so what, what isn't happening? What's, what's missing that these, these things are not being picked up? They're not spotted. So the first thing for me is the teachers haven't been educated on dyslexia. They are meant to have a two hour session in the whole of their dyslexia training, in the whole of their teacher training, sorry, um, on uh, dyslexia. If they miss that um, lecture, they are not educated on the subject of dyslexia at all. That's the end of it. That's all they're taught, two hours. And um, I, I met a, a, quite a young teacher about three years ago 
She'd been teaching for three years and she had eight and nine year olds in her class. And she said to me, what is dyslexia? And I just thought that is so sad that in, I understand 30 years ago that people didn't know what it was. I understand that. But now we're in this age where you would, it is a known thing, at least 10% of the class are going to have dyslexia. So out of a class of 30, you're very likely to have at least three children have got it. So they've, if they don't know what it is, how are they going to spot and be able to give that child the support that they need? Then let's just say they do know about dyslexia and the child is going to get learning support and they are supported in a way they should be. When they're actually in the classroom, that classroom really needs to be um, all inclusive so that the presentation of material is presented in a way that that child can read it. So don't have the, that child sitting at the back of the class, have them sitting quite near the front, somewhere where they can see the board if they've got to read from a board. Uh, on the board, it needs to be in a soft white, like a cream or a gray background so that the whites, because obviously whiteboards, reading for, with a white background is really difficult for people with dyslexia. The font that they have and the size of it needs to be dyslexia friendly. They're really easy things to put into a classroom, really easy. The teacher, it won't take the teacher a long time to set everything up so that it's always presented in that format. Writing, not all on top of each other, spaced nicely apart, chunked apart if there's a lot on the page, but obviously less on the page is better. Um, when they've got homework and there's any worksheets, make sure it's printed on a, on a cream background or a gray, you know, recycle paper. We're trying to save the environment. You, could, you can kill two birds with one stone here. That's yeah. what I, I just don't understand. That's one of my real big beefs, that is. It does seem strange that, you, you know, in 2021, that you can yeah. be a teacher and not have sort of a more thorough grounding when you know so my my son had very similar comments um which was one of the flags to me yeah. because he was getting similar comments to what i was getting at school sure. you know needs to concentrate and pay more attention and you know all, all the usual um but because of his age i wonder how you know if he will shake that stigma now before he finishes school he's then got another sort of two and a half years yeah um he's already had two years of people assuming that he's just a bit Lazy. you know easily distracted Lazy is another one. yeah yeah so and most people with dyslexia are far from lazy but i think the thing is is that as a parent parents need to try to encourage their children to focus on what they are good at don't worry about the things you're not good at. Try to focus on what you are good at. Because one of the things that I noticed with the parent workshops is those parents really wanted their children to be excelling at school. Well, they might not. It might yeah. not be possible for them to do that. And actually, success doesn't have to happen when you're at school. It can happen when, you're, when you leave school. I mean, most interesting things that we do are when we leave school. As someone who 
didn't go to university until well I actually I didn't I didn't go to college until I was 27 yeah I sort of took 10 years out if you like it, it wasn't it wasn't for me when I left school yeah and 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 even then it was in a creative it was a creative course it was graphic design and illustration and then so I didn't go to university until I was nearly 40 right but the and so that doesn't freak me out you know if 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 my yeah. kids choose to leave school and get a job and do something else and then go to college when they're ready for it i don't I didn't see go a problem to college with that. till i was in my 30s to do my music a level and then i graduated at university when i was 41 i i just think there's a lot of pressure now for people to feel like there's only and, and every year every year the exam results come out and it's yeah. hashtag yeah. you know not not one way or whatever it whatever it is yeah and yet that's so that's i don't people i don't think people buy that because wow. it's so ingrained in in the education system yes. that actually there is only one way and it's further in higher education and if yeah. and you will be significantly disadvantaged and and the I don't know what it's like now. It wasn't an issue for me. I, I never went for an interview where anybody asked me for my exam results. No. I had a portfolio and that that opened the doors for yeah. me. But I wonder how long it will take, if it hasn't already, for that sort of academic mentality to sort of get ingrained in the culture of organizations who are thinking, well, this... Yeah, this person looks like the right person for the job, but they don't, on paper, it's not there. Yeah, I think the good thing now is that companies are actually starting to embrace neurodiversity. So they see that uh, there are strengths in people uh, that have dyslexia or um, autism, and they're starting to pay attention to that. I mean, GCHQ, they're a big um, employer of people with dyslexia and autism. Um, Universal Music, they've brought out a great handbook for creative differences so that they are wanting to employ people that are neurodiverse, not just let's accommodate these people, let's actually accommodate them, but actually we want them because they're good at this, they're good at that. So I do think that the culture is starting to change. But what I hope is that it does actually move into education and education take it on board. Guy Hans, the finance and uh, entrepreneur that I interviewed in Guernsey. So he runs um, the billion pound company Terra Firma. And he said that education does, doesn't, it's so outdated, it doesn't prepare anybody for the working world. So, you know, things need to change. How long it will take to change, I don't know. If employers are starting to embrace neurodiversity, I'm sure it's got to change in education. It's funny, I, I keep thinking of uh, Ken Robinson's TED talk where he, he tells the story of the, the girl who is fidgety. And right. I think this was in the mid 50s, right. something like that. And she was taken to a doctor because they thought she had ADHD, and this was before yeah. ADHD was even a thing. So sure. whatever they called it then, 
and so the the doctor sort of asks to speak to the mother privately outside now whether the, whether there was a radio on in the room already or whether he put the radio on to sort of occupy the little girl don't know right. but he left the radio on the went out of the room and he said now watch her and she started to dance and he said right. she doesn't need medication she wants to dance yeah and and then so it turns out that this i can't remember the person's name um but uh, so look up the the you know if you've not seen the 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 ken robinson sir ken okay. robinson ted talk watch that because it's it's gold and so she ended up being this sort of west end choreographer yeah the thesis for his talk is schools are designed to create um college lecturers Yes. So, you know, the whole, the way you're taught, the way that you're tested, um, the environment that, that that is created for you, if that's your career path, then it is on the money. Yeah. But if you want to do anything that's slightly different to that, then, you know, the further, I suppose, if there's a spectrum of, of things either side of a college lecturer, yes. then you get, you're more and more disadvantaged. And I suppose if you're into the arts, then potentially you're even more disadvantaged because uh and especially i suppose if you're if you're a dyslexic person who is creative yeah. you're even more you know so you just get more and more marginalized yeah. if three years from now we were to have a chat yeah. and to reflect on the things that have had the biggest impact on changing things for for people who just not just dyslexia but just just people who learn differently what do you think needs to happen you know, in your experience, what do you think needs to happen? So I think that um, there needs to be more funding in learning support. There needs to be teacher training. Jackie Stewart, he fought for that. He got it in Scotland, but he couldn't get it in England. And he tried and he said, and he won't be broken, but he said he was with that. Um, but he got it for Scotland. So there are changes being made. Um made by dyslexia have you heard of them the no. they're doing this joining the dots program and they're trying to get that in schools that's backed by uh sir richard brunson um and they've been making quite a lot of headway with that um but there's just not enough funding so there needs to be more funding more training and more awareness in general and focusing on people's strengths rather than looking at the weaknesses and embrace those strengths rather than just having this system where we that whole you know like they say about judging a fish to climb a tree you know that whole einstein quote because that basically is it um so i would like to see that changed um you know i've got the gofundme um project going which is dyslexia and success so basically get this book into every school in the UK that is my absolute aim and I won't stop until I get there um, my first priority is I've been getting the books out to the young offenders institutes in the UK so I got a meeting with somebody tonight um, connected to one of the uh, youth offending um, teams because there's a high rate of people with neurodiversity in young offenders who 
they don't understand why but I'm that's something I'm looking into um in fact I've been asked by the House of Commons to actually put a report together to because they've got an inquiry into it at the moment so I am because the thing is, is that if they leave the Youth Offending um, Institute and they have not been supported with the problems they're having with dyslexia, then they're going to reoffend because they're not going to be able to get a job. But I mean, it's 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 just true across the board, across the board, isn't it? That if someone yes. feels like they're being ignored, they will become disruptive. It's sort of classic. You know, trying to get attention when you when you're not being given any attention. In in my line of work, I've worked with a lot of um, what have been termed in inverted commas problem children. Yeah. Either from school or or, or children who have excluded themselves from school. Right. And it's not uncommon for me to spend half a day before I, you know, I'll I'll take the book in sort of months in advance, and then right. I spent half the day before I remember. Oh yeah, this was the problem class. Easy for me to say because I'm I'm sort of maybe sort of working with them, sort of making films or animation. They might not have done it before, um, and it's creative, and they're and they're engaged because it's sort of active. Right. But I haven't at no point did it occur to me that they're problem children. Right. Um, I was once told. <laughs> On the way into a job, I was once told, if you have to squash them, just squash them. <laughs> and and this was from a teacher. And I thought, I've never had to felt the need to squash anybody, <laughs> you know, as part of my job. But, you know, you think, well, if that's the attitude that's being, yeah. and who knows what, you know, there are any number of reasons why someone might be disruptive. But it feels like there's, you know, if, if three in 30 can have dyslexia, mm. There might be, you know, any number of other, you know, now named conditions that, you know, that are existing in that classroom and maybe yes. some of them are overlapping. Yeah. It seems a, a huge oversight for, like you say, not to just accommodate that this should just be like, like, and, and, and I hate to, I'm not sort of wanting to compare conditions but it's almost like going back to times where we didn't have accessible buildings you know it feels like i felt i felt sort of education to me was no more accessible than if i was in a wheelchair and there wasn't a ramp right yeah yeah that you know what makes I mean? sense. yes that makes sense yeah i think the thing is is that this is one of my things is that it's it's law you have to send your children to school so therefore, if you if they have to go, the teachers should be equipped to be able to teach them, all of them, not just some of them, all of them. And we now know about dyslexia, we know about ADHD, we know about autism. So it's time to actually make sure that the teachers are educated mm -hmm. and then the parents are then supported on it as well so that yeah. they have realistic expectations of their child. and try to nurture the things that they're very good at so they have that good self-esteem and then yeah. they're then equipped when they come out of school to go and follow whatever they want to do you know and that can be anything absolutely and and it struck me just to sort of pick up on a couple of examples from your book there were there are at least two that i read female actresses right yes cara toynton 
and and both of them seem to be that's right now she was taught at home wasn't she yes and susan hampshire was the first person the first well-known person to actually speak out about dyslexia because nobody was talking about it at all so she decided that she had to do something about it and she came from a family of teachers so she said that she just felt this social responsibility to stand up regardless of how it was going to affect her career and actually speak about it and she was the first person she started up the dyslexia institute which is now dyslexia action um, and actually started to make noises about it so that people became aware about it but yeah she was taught at home and her mother was a ballet teacher so she would her mother just kept her away from school. And in fact, she started up her own school through the daytime. And then, then she would continue with the ballet school when school finished. And because she said there was just no school for her that could have taught yeah. her. So she said she can remember sitting underneath her mother's piano um, through the ballet classes. And then, and then they would then turn turn the room back again into a classroom and slowly a few more other children would come that weren't able to be taught in mainstream school um mm. and i mean this was going back years ago so and dyslexia was just unknown people didn't know what it was um, yeah. but the thing is is that even if you don't know what it is there's always a way to find a way to teach somebody you've just got to, if yeah. you're a good teacher you can explore other ways but, you know, teachers are under a lot of pressure as well. I completely understand that. I really get it. So I, I have Absolutely. sympathy with them too. But, of course, you don't want that child leaving school feeling like they're rubbish. Yeah. Because what's going to happen to them? And if they've got no support at home, that's how these kids end up in young offenders institutes, if they've got no support. So, yeah. you know... I felt a bit daft because when it was a music teacher that pointed out to us that my son might be dyslexic. Right. But he was so highly functioning yeah. that we thought, no, that can't be right. I even and, had the same thing with my would have, daughter, yeah. yeah. And surely yeah. they would have picked it up at school. The thing with dyslexia is it's not based on intelligence at all. Or even ability to some degree because like with, with my son, it's it's more about comprehension yeah. so and i and i related to that i mean that's why i, I really appreciated your book because it felt a very i rattled through right. in the time that i had i rattled through loads of it yeah. um but you know there are some things i read and i just have to read the paragraph again and maybe i i'm not saying that i'm dyslexic i don't yeah. know it's just you know given because there is a sort of a hereditary nature yes, to it is you could uh, yes, which is, is not unusual right and he can so in uh, the first lockdown i we we already had suspicion so i just said right what i want you to do let's just forget whatever you're getting or not getting from school here's a really good documentary watch that for an hour yeah. and then i wrote out some questions and he wrote some responses and they were quite insightful responses right and then that made me think even I was thinking, as his parent, I was thinking, mm. you know, maybe he is just a bit lazy. <laughs> so that, so that's terrible because, you know, with everything that I know, but what I didn't know was, to me, dyslex dyslexia was, in my head, it was a very black and white thing. Yeah. You, you know, it's this or it's that. 
and actually there's there's clearly a spectrum yeah Mm. i think the thing is spelling is one of the obviously the most obvious um problems uh processing when you're trying to read something reading aloud generally is quite difficult um i can read but I have to keep rereading over and over and over again before I've processed what I've read. Um, So I don't get very far into a book. I can honestly say I've probably only ever read a couple of books in my whole life, Um, but I will refer to books for factual things. And through my research, I I haven't realized that that's actually really common. And people generally don't read for pleasure. They wouldn't read a novel because it is such hard work. But the beauty is we now have audio books. We now have um, voice to text and text to speech. The technology that you can get around this stuff now is amazing. So if I had a long text to send, I would just literally go speaking to Siri. It takes it all down for me and I send it. I have a supporting chapter in the book, which is provided by Oxford University. And it's the latest neuroscience evidence to supporting the winning formulas to success with dyslexia. And what they, in their conclusion, what they actually say is that the dyslexic day really is coming because people with dyslexia have these creative strengths And now with technology being as amazing as it is, I mean, you don't need to memorize facts anymore. I could look anything up literally at the touch of a button. I can speak into it. I don't even have to type it if I don't want to. And I can find anything out within a minute. I don't have to memorize everything anymore. So therefore, you have access to all that technology that gets around most of the problems with dyslexia. Organisation is a small um, thing that I have to say I still have issues with. Um, But with everything else, I can honestly say you can get around a lot of the problems in your daily life. Um, And basically what Oxford University is saying is the dyslexic day is coming because with those extra strengths that you get from dyslexia, with that technology, you're going to fly. When someone finds their passion, they will create their own sort of coping strategies yes. and work around it. And like you say, the technology is a huge boost now yeah. um, because, you know, there isn't you know anything that you can't find out instantly. No. Um, I suppose we're still in that rut of, yeah, but you need to know just in case. That's a luxury if if you're if you're able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, there are definitely there are definitely ways around it. I had to ask because obviously yeah. you've spoken to a lot of um, sort of well-known people. Was there yeah. any 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 funny stories to come out of that? Oh well, well, there's quite a few really. But um, probably early on, I wanted to interview James Martin, the chef, and um, I contacted his publicist. And I mean, getting these interviews were pretty tough. It wasn't an easy process. And getting past their agent or their publicist was always the hardest thing. They are their gatekeeper. They have got to protect them to a certain degree because obviously they're being asked to do these things all the time. Uh, Secondly, obviously their time. But then thirdly, obviously, I'm a piano teacher on the South Coast. Who am I? You know, nobody knows me. 
And I was amazed when I when I called uh, Tom Jones' publicist and she was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure he'd love to do that. And I was like, whoa, that was the first person I called. So I thought, wow, wow. this is gonna be easy. So then when I started contacting the others and it was either, they either didn't answer you, they would just give you a false email to contact when you called them um, and it would just bounce back. Um, but yeah, with the James Martin one, I think I was turned down two or three times. Why, why did you chase James Martin for a year? So I wanted a chef, a celebrity chef, because I think it's really important that because obviously a lot of people who have dyslexia um, are creative, I looked for a really wide, broad range of careers. And I, I think that's the really nice thing about the book as well, because yeah, it is a big book. But you yeah. don't have to read all of it. No, it and you really can. Is. So if there are people that you're interested in, so I like, exactly. you know, I would I would go straight to the uh, the the Tom Jones and yeah. and there's there's even a list at the front, so you can, you know, That's you it. can you, the people are categorised. So yeah. even if you haven't heard them, but you're interested in actors, then you can yeah. go and sort of read, and that's really helpful. My husband um, was his business was in classic cars at the time. And we were at the Classic Car Show in London. And um, it was the first show that was being redone with Chris Evans. And he had James Martin doing some cooking there and he brought his cars along and stuff. So I thought, wow, this could be my opportunity to finally interview him. So before I went, I've, and I'm very much a person that I think if you want to do something, if you focus on it, you can do it regardless of anything. Um, so I thought, right, this is my time to put this into practice. I've got to focus. I will. And I visualized me walking up to him and asking him for an interview and him saying yes. So um, we had a stand at the um, arena there. And anyway, I had my little piece of paper with all the people I had in the book printed off with pictures of just pictures of them. I looked up from the stand and I could see him walking towards our stand with his entourage. Obviously, he wasn't going to be coming to our stand, but he was going to be walking by. So I thought, this is it. So I thought, get your piece of paper out. So I walked straight up to him and, um, and I just said, oh, hi, James. Um, I'm doing this book called Dyslexia and Success, The Winning Formulas. I would really love to interview for it. Uh, would you be willing to do that? And he was like, oh, yeah, I would love to gave me his phone number, said, give me a call next week and we'll arrange a date for an interview. Job done. And I was just like, Excellent. honestly, I tried for probably over a year to get that interview. When I said to him, what was his advice? What would he say to young people? He said, read the bloody book. That was his actual <laughs> words. <laughs> he said, look at all the people that are in it. He said, yeah. you can't go yeah. wrong. Well, that's it for this episode, I'm afraid. Remember and check out Karen's GoFundMe. And if you can help raise money in any way, she didn't ask me to do this, but I'm sure she'd be happy to hear from you. Again, I hope this episode was worth your time. Remember and share the life out of it. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And most importantly, the website playfulcommunications.co.uk, home to Made on a Mobile, where you can join the mobile revolution and learn to shoot, edit and share a smartphone or a tablet is all you need. Look out for another pod very soon, but for now, comment, like, subscribe. Comment, like, subscribe. Comment.
Subscribe.